Welcome to the showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever the uh, opportunity opens up, I suppose. Anyway, I wanted to um, uh, introduce this episode with little context. Um, this is the second part of a Samsung sort of discussion. We started off with uh, Ed Sue, who was a chief, who is chief strategy officer at Publicis OPTS in New York. Uh, I do not know what OPTS stands for, uh, but if you do, you can let me know. But uh, he was working on the uh, Samsung mobile business, and uh, we had a conversation uh, about that because I was sort of, I was kind of intrigued by the work that 72 and Sony had done around sort of the challenger position of Apple, and it was this sort of Samsung versus Apple work that was done back in 2010. It was just a great example of a challenger brand, and it had, it had, it had enormous uh, business success that moved Samsung from number five in the U.S. to being, I think, number two, which was a brilliant move. And there was this great story behind that. And uh, during my conversation with Ed, he had recommended uh, this book called Samsung Rising, which is written by Jeffrey Kane. And Jeffrey has worked uh, for Fast Company, or written, sorry, for Fast Company, for Time Magazine, for Wired Magazine. And so um, I read a summary of the book first, and then the publisher sent me the book, and I, I, I read it. And the first half of the book is really about Samsung, the conglomerate, and the South Korean culture's impact on the growth of the of the company, and the, just the an explanation of the scale of it and the culture of it. But the second part of the book, uh, which was my more to my interest, was the backstory behind Seventy Two and Sunny's work with uh, Todd Pendleton uh, and others in uh, the marketing department of Samsung North America, which is in Austin. And Todd had come from Nike and had worked on brand Jordan and some others had been a, a part of other great successful marketing efforts. And they came into this new culture of Samsung's. And this is the story of them trying to disrupt uh, the, the sort of the rigid culture of Samsung marketing and of Samsung, the corporation, in order to be able to address what was a huge uh, perception issue and brand issue for Samsung in North America. So uh, we actually ended up having a conversation, Jeffrey and I, which is what this episode is about. He's giving us the backstory. And of course, we can't get into all the details, but it really is a terrific book to, uh, to kind of, if you're into sort of the backstories of campaigns, kind of the, uh, the fly on the wall of what happens, it's really well written. So I would encourage anybody to, to, uh, to, to grab the book if you have that interest. Samsung Rising, Jeffrey Kane. Uh, Kane is spelled C. A-I-N. Uh, you can obviously listen to the episode uh, here on, uh, well, you got two platform options now. One is uh, the, the podcasts are now available on the website uh, where you can also view the creative work or they're available on the actual podcast platforms again. And you can, you can, uh, you can subscribe either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whomever you you use for podcasts, and you'll get all the content there. But in order to see the uh, TV spots and the uh, other elements, the creative assets, you can go to the website uh, on strategyshowcase.com. So this is Jeffrey Kane, and this is the second part of uh, Samsung Rising, the story behind Samsung versus Apple. Enjoy. Welcome, Jeffrey. Great to have you here. Thank you so much 
for carving out time to talk to us from Istanbul, Turkey, no doubt. Thank you, Fergus, for having me. I'm really happy to be on the show. So um, I've read the book. Uh, I, I've uh, I loved it. And, you know, it's it reminded me for because m- most of my audience is, is uh, marketing related. So uh, I, that's why I love this book. And it was initially brought to my attention by this chief strategy officer of, a, uh, of the publicist agency that works on the Samsung mobile brand. And, um, and uh, um, it was, so I, I read it, I read it, I, I read an excerpt first and then I got the book from your publisher and read the whole thing. And it really put me in mind of other books that I've loved, such as uh, Walter Isaacs and Steve Jobs and the way that you write and the, the story and the sense of getting inside the head of, of the individual. And also uh, another book which will date me, uh, which is Where the Suckers Moon, uh, which was Randall Rothenberg's book about Wyden and Kennedy Advertising Agency when they tried to pitch the Subaru account. Because your book does a very similar thing. It takes us inside the dynamics of developing, at least the second half of the book does, into the dynamics of developing a marketing strategy an advertising strategy and takes us sort of inside the conference room. So it's really, really a great read. Thank you. I appreciate that, Fergus. And I actually have not read uh, the Viting Kennedy book, but that is one that is, has been on my list for a while on my bucket list. And it's one that um, I'm probably going to read soon now that you've recommended it. Good, man. It's, it, it, is a, it is a really good read. So uh, Samsung Rising um, is, is your book. And uh, tell us a little bit about why this book and and why now. So why this book? You know, that's um, that's a really good question. And that's a question that I was thinking about as I started researching it and writing it. Um, So I actually started working on this project about 10 years ago. It was about June 2010. This was the, the time when the whole Apple versus Samsung war was starting, when uh, Apple had released its iPhone and, and had been putting out new iterations for the previous three years since Steve Jobs released it in 2007. And I had been in Silicon Valley for a little while. I was reporting for the Fast Company magazine and for a few other magazines' time, a few websites here and there, Wired. And I got an invitation to go to Korea, to go to Seoul. And I had already been in Korea. That's why they gave me the invitation, because I was familiar with the country and I knew my way around. And they said, so the magazine, the Fast Company, they approached me and they said, we're doing a big story on Samsung. Be- you know, Samsung is this company that nobody really knows, that nobody nobody really has the backstory behind it. And yet it's this massive Korean conglomerate that makes everything from semiconductors to just the displays to the smartphones to, you know, they do shipping, they build apartments, they they do absolutely everything you could possibly imagine. They run a hospital, they run multiple hospitals in Korea, they consult on graveyard management. I mean, they, they just have this incredible, yeah, they have an incredible portfolio, credit cards, life insurance, uh, you know, it just everything, fashion lines, uh, they run a theme park. Just everything that you can imagine that a company could possibly do, Samsung probably does it. How did it really get to be such a large conglomerate? As you say, it, it permeates almost every aspect of society. So the must, those connections with society must and government must, must run deep. 
they run extremely deep and they go back decades and decades. It really goes back. So there was a period in Korea when the Japanese government uh, had colonized Korea. And this was really the starting point for these Chable groups. Uh, and the Chable are these big family-run conglomerates. And it wasn't really until, so there, there was a period, and you're, you're talking about GE in America, IBM. Um, it was the same period. It was the 1950s to the 1980s that Samsung attained the support of three different Korean dictators who oversaw it, who helped it grow, who occasionally punished it for bad behavior, for corruption, but saw it as a symbol of this rising Korean nation, this idea that uh, the nation of South Korea should be tied to this, the success of Samsung and Hyundai, another company, and that the, the fate of these companies should be tied to the fate of South Korea itself. Where, where, did, the, where did that spirit of innovation, that ability to innovate, um, that, that, where did that come from culturally? Because we always think, because I think we're programmed to think as Americans that innovation is owned by America, when that's just not a reality. So wh- what do you think the root of it is? Is it, is it uh, technology capture? Is it, is it pure genius? Where, where does it start, do you think? I think it starts in Korea, at least from patriotism. I think that it's a different story from if you were to go to Silicon Valley today and you were to see, uh, you know, what Uber is doing, SoftBank. I mean, WeWork. These are companies that have been innovative in the past and that have had massive valuations and have plummeted in so many ways that are just so interesting on their own. But um, I think that if you were to switch gears and to go to Korea, you know, historically to look at how this country created what it did, how did it make all these smartphones? How did it make all these TVs that we all use today? Um, the, I think the answer really comes down to patriotism. So the Koreans have a, a, a word called the minjok, and the minjok, it translates roughly into nation race or like kind of the, the racial community. And I think that Samsung has been extremely successful under its generational leadership by tapping in to that very, very ingrained, long-lasting, you know, many generations feeling this way of we can compete with the Americans, we can compete with Japan, even though we're the Japanese, even though we're the, you know, this, this tiny peninsula, this half of a peninsula that's divided and that's been in poverty for years and years. So how would you describe the form of government in South Korea today? It's a functioning republic. So, you know, Korea is an interesting <laughs> place. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's so bad. That's why I'm so fascinated with Korea because it's, it's a modern republic. Uh, the president has one, uh, you know, one period of election, one term where he can serve, he or she can serve five years. Uh, and there is no re-election unlike the U.S. Uh, you know, it has its own national assembly, basically a parliament. But it is a, you know, they have a prime minister uh, who is elected by parliament. It is a country that has emerged with strong checks and balances. And, you know, it's a functioning country where people trust each other pretty well. And I think as we've seen uh, recently with COVID, Korea has been one of the countries that has, you know, responded to it just just in such a, a, you know, such an efficient way. I, I mean, it's one of the few countries that is not devastated yeah, uh, you know, among OECD countries. Samsung has this uh, collaboration with Apple. Uh, Steve Jobs has, has developed uh, strong relationships. Tim, Cook's, Tim Cook has developed strong relationships with Samsung. It was, the, it was the chip 
provider, the sole chip provider, I believe, for the iPod. So it was definitely a valued, critical supplier to Apple. But then things change and it becomes a direct competitor. Can you tell us the story behind how this rivalry began? Samsung and Apple were originally allies. They were partners in the the business in, in the business sphere. They were uh, so Apple would make the iPod, and Samsung would make the NAND flash memories. This was a very very important deal. It was extremely important to the to the success of Samsung, um, and it was a deal in which a man named Huang Chongyu, who was the uh, the head of the Samsung Semiconductor Unit, so. He had actually uh, gone to meet Steve Jobs in person, and he had a mission, a goal from Samsung. They said, we've developed this new flash memory, and it's called NAND, N-A-N-D. And that was a type of flash memory that was resistant to shocks. Uh, So one of the problems with iPods back in the day, if anyone remembers you know, what it was like to get an iPod in like the early 2000s, you know, you would, you would drop it or you would bump it against the table and the, the battery or the, the hard drive could just die. And so Steve Jobs was looking for a component that could resist that kind of shock that could be, you know, that could make it more portable, make it more efficient, make it, you know, just a better user experience. And it was only because of Samsung's breakneck speed, its ability to execute in this militaristic style the creation, uh, you know, of a major semiconductor, of a major, you know, a, a major component that nobody else could do that allowed him to land the business of Steve Jobs. And Jobs, uh, during a series of meetings, they were in 2004 and 2005, he was just, uh, Steve Jobs was enormously impressed with the quality and the speed of what Samsung could, you know, could accomplish. This is the iPod that the relationship begins uh, with. It then extends into the iPhone with the launch of the iPhone for a number of the series of the iPhone. Uh, it's, it's in place. But then I think it was the iPhone, was it the iPhone 4 where things changed? Yes. Yeah, so the iPhone 4 was where things changed. And uh, I don't think that they just changed in, in, on Apple's side, but I think that they changed... Uh, on the side of Samsung too. So the iPhone 4 was really, I, I think the year was uh, 2010 or early, it must have been 2011, 2010. Um, and this was when it became clear to the industry that, that Apple was not going to be innovating like it had in the past. So, you know, it was clear that they were doing incremental innovations and you know minor updates. Each iPhone essentially had, had the same form. And I think that Samsung they really saw a weakness. And this is when Samsung began looking for um, U.S. marketers in this office in Richardson, Texas. So it was called, the office was called Samsung Telecommunications America. This was the office that oversaw marketing sales. And they zeroed but, in but before, on, before we go there, Jeffrey, sorry, before we go there, let's give the listeners sort of a sense of the reality at that time. Was the first smartphone the, the Galaxy S2? Was that the first one that they produced? So the first one they produced was actually the Galaxy S, and it was a, a complete disaster. It was a phone that they released in 2009 at an obscure product launch in Singapore that nobody really watched. Um, it was just a lousy user experience. It had a really bad operating system. It was called Bada. 
And it, yeah, Samsung was trying to make its own operating system, and they just, you know, you, like you couldn't use Skype on it, you couldn't use basic functions, Google Maps wouldn't work. I mean, it really was just a disastrous phone. Just for the listener, it's, I think it's pretty important to point out that when you look globally in terms of smartphone sales, um, um, that really the majority, almost 70% of Galaxy's sales uh, are, are Samsung sales were happening internationally. I mean, it's like a 70-30 split market share-wise globally, whereas in the U.S., in favor of Samsung, while in the U.S., it was almost a 70-30 split in favor of Apple. I mean, this was a dominant Apple market. Samsung needed to to make headway in the U.S., and this really, as I understand it, was the purpose behind the bold move to direct to go directly after Apple. America was one of the very few countries, maybe even the only country, where Samsung was not the number one in volume and the number one in profit margins. Uh, and that was a serious problem. And, you know, they would ask themselves, and you have to keep in mind, remember that these executives were not competing with Apple to this point. That, you know, they, it was an insular country with an insular market where the iPhone was essentially banned. And... Yeah, they would look at this and they would say, well, why aren't we winning in America? Why, why is Samsung number one everywhere else? And their first gut instinct was simply to, to blame the American offices, to say that, you know, the American offices are doing a terrible job. But it was thanks to the work of a group of Korean executives who were based in America in Texas and New York, two of the key Samsung offices. Um, they convinced the headquarters that actually the problem is Steve Jobs and Apple in the iPhone dominate here, that this is the home base for the iPhone. And, you know, the typical American just, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they go to the local cell phone shop, they turn on their TV, they go outside, they look at banner ads. I mean, they see iPhones everywhere. It's just, it's, it's a cultural trend and it's something that we need to turn around. And so they made it their goal to enter the American market and to compete directly with Apple. Now, this was a huge cultural shift that that Samsung had to be convinced with some pretty heavy-handed tactics from their own people in the U.S. Uh, to take a, a different approach to how they branded and how they marketed, right? Yes, yes. And the way that they did this was that they hired Razorfish, um, the big branding agency. They hired these guys to, to, make a, to film a documentary in Times Square. The camera crew... They had two camera crews that would walk around, and each one had a duffel bag. And in one duffel bag, uh, there would be, you know, a brand new. Well, I mean, theoretically, a brand new iPhone, but not actually. They didn't have anything in them. And then in the other duffel bag, there would be the latest brand new Galaxy. And you know, they would ask random people in Times Square. So, you know, I have this brand new iPhone here for you. What would you give me for it? And you know, this is 2010, 2011. People would say, uh, you know, I, I give you my sister, I give you, you know, my brand new Mercedes, I give you my, you know, like I, I give you, you know, they, they would, you know, pull all the stops, they do backflips to make sure they can get that next iPhone. And then they would ask people, the other crew would say, well, okay, so we have a Galaxy here. And what would you uh, give me for this new Galaxy by Samsung? And people would just look at them and say, Galaxy, like Samsung, I mean, isn't that cheap knockoff stuff? And, you know, the Korean executives watch it, watched it. And finally, they realized 
the problem that Samsung had in America, that this was not a problem necessarily of hardware. I mean, it wasn't a problem of, you know, like you're talking, you were talking about telecommunications companies, so AT&T and Sprint, you know, it wasn't a problem of having the wrong network or the wrong channel or the wrong distribution. It was a problem of big picture branding that Samsung actually did produce a good phone by 2011 or 12. I mean, they had made a lot of progress in that previous year, but it's just that nobody actually knew who they were. I mean, people just didn't know. People looked at Samsung and they thought it's a Japanese company. And, and I believe that's when uh, Dale Son, who was, it was a Samsung executive here in the U.S., made the brave move to hire uh, Todd Pendleton. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And Brian Wallace, ultimately. Uh, Todd Pendleton had been, uh, had been at Nike. He had launched the Jordan brand line, very well-known marketer. And he was recruited to come and head up marketing with, uh, with Dale Sun, who I believe was the CEO of, of the Americas. And this is when the relationship with 72 and Sunny starts uh, for the launch of this great challenger campaign. Tell us about Todd and Brian Wallace and the role that they played in making all of this magic happen ultimately. Yes. So Todd Pendleton, he was a Nike executive, as as you said, and Brian Wallace was his assistant or his his second in command. Brian was uh, a a data cruncher. He was a, a social media analytics guy. So uh, Samsung under Dale Sohn, who was the CEO of the Texas, uh, the sales and marketing office, wanted to have one guy who was creative, you know, one guy who was the Nike, the, you know, the, the branding guy, big picture guy, and one guy who was the nuts and bolts, the data processing research surveys, uh, you know, what, like what's going on on Twitter right now, that, that guy who managed the day to day marketing business in the office. Um, and immediately, both of these guys arrived and they saw, you know, that exact problem. They saw that, you know, Samsung, it, uh, it had pretty good hardware by then. It was making progress. It didn't have a good user experience. It hadn't quite developed that, that touch and feel, as you said, and that software, uh, you know, experience on the actual screen. But the bigger problem, even beyond that, was that it just had terrible marketing. It just nobody knew who or what Samsung was. If you, you know, if you looked at an iPhone commercial, an iPhone commercial or, you know, a Steve Jobs product launch, it, it immediately conjured up all these really cool images of, you know, this is a perfectionist product, whereas Samsung just had none of that. So their goal was to turn that around and to turn Samsung into a big picture brand, or as they would call it at the time, the word that they would use the term 360 marketing, just trying to place Samsung in these cultural moments and making the galaxy something bigger than simply the hardware or more than the sum of the parts, you could say. Tell us about basically the story of what Todd and that team had to do in order to sort of get to that point, because it it was, I mean, their jobs were on the line before they'd even done their job. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. The moment they stepped in there, they were on thin ice. They could have been fired at any moment. And the reason is because the Korean side of the company was hierarchical, militaristic. I mean, it was regimented, like military units working on the floor every day, trying to make the best semiconductor. On top of that, the Korean headquarters had this conundrum where, you know, they, as we said before, they were supplying Apple with chips and displays. 
whereas uh, you know the American marketing office is the one going head to head against Apple. So that naturally just creates incredible friction between these American and Korean offices. When they were doing research, as I understand it, when they were doing focus groups, some interesting things were happening when they brought in Apple uh, iPhone users and they brought in Android users. Now, this isn't Samsung users. This is Android because Android was baked in as the operating system in many different handsets at that time. So tell us about the dynamics that were happening in research that ultimately led them to feel that they might have something they could leverage here as a marketer. So they found after some of these research, um, uh, you know, some of these research projects that they would put everybody in a room and, you know, they would put the, the iPhone users and they would put the Android users into a room together and they would do these, um, you know, these, these marketing experiments. And they found that there was a growing tribe that, you know, the iPhone users became, you know, you would ask them, what's great about an iPhone, what's great about Apple. And they would go on and on about the, the you know, the features, the UX, the design. Um, and then somebody on the Android side of the room, uh, you know, a, a very serious Android user who's not even using Samsung would often, you know, offer his rebuttal. He just say, well, that's, that's complete hogwash. And no, I, I don't think so. And Android is more, uh, you know, more customizable. You can, you know, there are more apps that you can use for it. It's more, you know, you can tinker with it. It's, uh, it has all these other benefits that nobody's really talking about. And and these these research focus groups would um, just end up in uh, just just debates, in fights, and you know, people would start arguing. And the Samsung executives actually had to stop the research groups and separate <laughs> people and just say like, look, only in America, <laughs> only in America. <laughs> so uh, what they, I mean, this, this was a moment of, I think, clarity for the Samsung marketing researchers. It was a moment of enlightenment. You know, it was like that aha, the light bulb. Um, and it wasn't because the research folk, the, these focus groups were just so, you know, dysfunctional. Uh, the thing that they realized was that there are two tribes here, that there's the Apple tribe, and the Apple tribe has a leader who's Steve Jobs and Apple. And then there's this Android tribe, but it's this disparate tribe of all these people who just use Android, and maybe they're using HTC phones and they're using Samsung and maybe Ericsson and Sony and all this. But who is their leader? Nobody's actually leading them. I mean, they, they want a leader. It's like they want someone... They want someone to come in and to say, here's your phone or here's your, you know, here's your thing. Here's the culture. Here's how it's going to work here. And Samsung decided that we're going to be that one. We're going to take, we're going to tap into that tribe. We're going to tap into that culture. And we're going to become the tribe that stands against the obnoxious Apple Macheads who are really pretentious and snobby. My understanding is that 72 and Sunny had literally a couple of days to come, I think it was four days to come up with that, come up with a campaign after they'd been briefed by Todd uh, Pendleton. 72 and Sunny was enlisted by Todd Pendleton to do, like you said, the, the launch, or you could say the, uh, the challenger attack, the, the Coke versus Pepsi. And it, it was really, you know, and this is what the Samsung executives envisioned. They they foresaw this Coke versus Pepsi style battle where Samsung would be the classic challenger, and they wanted 
an ad agency like 72 and Sunny that could be kind of edgy. It was a campaign that was controversial at the time, both within and outside Samsung, because there were fears that Samsung was giving free marketing to its rival. I mean, it's like if you, uh, they released these commercials and they would show uh, you know, the, all these Apple lemmings, these zombies standing outside the Apple store, you know, waiting in a nine hour line. And there would be a Samsung Android user who's just standing there tapping away at his phone, you know, just, you know, on, on, the, on the corner somewhere. And all the Apple guys would look at him and they, they would say, uh, you know, like, where, where did you get that Samsung phone? And why do I have to wait nine hours in line for an Apple? That's really just a minor upgrade from the previous phone. That was their marketing pitch. Three hours till phone nirvana. Yeah. I am so amped. I could stand here for three weeks. Nine hours down and we're almost in the door. Only seven people stand between us and meeting. Yeah, I mean, this is an event. We're gonna remember this for the rest of our lives. I think two people just left. Why would they be leaving when we're only nine hours away? Uh-oh. Blogs are saying the battery looks sketchy. If it looks the same, how will people know I upgraded? Doesn't 4G, say. is it 4G? It doesn't say. Whoa. What she got there? Not sure. What is that? Guys. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, bro. Can we see your phone? Uh, sure. Can I see with my hands? Uh, have you seen this thing? Ooh. She totally caught me checking out her phone. Check out the screen. This thing is huge. It's pretty massive. And it's got 4G speed. It's magnificent. Samsung. Samsung? That's a Samsung. Yeah. Is this what adultery feels like? Samsung. Samsung. Pretty big display. It's the next thing, man. Whatevs. I could never get a Samsung. I'm creative. Dude, you're a barista. And the big concern was that, well, you know, that's just, it's, it's a commercial that basically highlights the popularity of Apple and then shows Samsung as the underdog or the, the challenger that just doesn't really have the same pull, you know. And, and that was something that upset a lot of people within Samsung. The, the Samsung headquarters would uh, call Todd Pendleton's team every Wednesday and, and people would just yell on the phone. I mean, they were really angry that, you know, they would attack Apple head on in a way that, that just was so risky to them. Yeah, it's interesting that all of us, and I think no matter what industry, what profession you're in, uh, at one time or another, you're sort of moaning about the fact that you're not treated well, right? And you've got a lot of pressure put on you to achieve something, you know, one thing or another. But what blew my mind when I was reading your book was the fact that uh, when um, when Brian Wallace talks about going to going back uh, over, I think he had to go back over to Seoul for a meeting of the marketing teams from around the world, some 600 people in the auditorium. And and um, while he was there expecting to be applauded for the incredible success of the Galaxy 2, which then brought, I think, Samsung from being number five, I think, in the U.S. to number two. Um, he was actually pointed out and uh, focused on because they didn't feel that he did good enough, right? Something, something like that, right? That's exactly what happened. So um, the team was expecting to get the award for the best performing marketing team. And it was clear at this point, I actually, I have a stack of PowerPoint presentations and, you know, like data from there, there were other affiliates uh, in Malaysia and Russia and elsewhere that wanted to adopt the marketing campaign of the Todd Pendleton team. And so they expected, you know, that this would be a big moment that they would be recognized for their work. And, you know, we're talking, these are, I mean, these are all nighters. They were just working nonstop to get this, this campaign out. Like a lot of 
good marketing campaigns. But instead, at this first award ceremony, um, they were called out and the MC told them that they were the worst performing marketing team in the world. And they were asked, yeah, so they, they were asked to stand and everybody in the room, they, they were asked uh, to clap for this American marketing team to console them, to make them feel better that they were the worst performing in the world. And then, uh, you know, that was that. And they never got that, that award or that recognition. So, yes, this, I think that, you know, these types of corporate politics and corporate culture, you know, these quirks, they happen um, at a lot of big companies. You know, there are a lot of marketing teams that feel they're undervalued or devalued. But um, I think that when you look at the story of Samsung, it's a, it's a cultural factor or a cultural quirk that is a, a lot more unusual than other companies I've covered at least. Because at Samsung, if you outdo your boss or outdo the headquarters or do anything different from what the headquarters wants you to do, even if it's a blistering success, you are going to be shamed and, you know, and destroyed and pushed out of the company or fired simply because uh, you did not fit into that, you know, that super militaristic hierarchy. So it's, uh, it really is something. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, I, I, there are so many stories in that I could not fit into that book. I had a, a page limit and a word count limit, but I mean, the, the stories about people who've outperformed and shown themselves and just getting slammed down by the Samsung bureaucracy are really something else and really incredible. So how would you, my last question, uh, Jeffrey, would be, how would you define the way the Samsung brand is positioned today in the U.S.? So um, I think that, you know, today it's, it's not quite what it used to be. So if you look at inner brand rankings, um, you know, Samsung still is a powerful brand. It does have uh, a good position. But I think that the, the 2016 fires of the Galaxy Note 7 was really the first crack at the egg for the brands of Samsung. Now, a lot of people don't remember the, those Note 7 fires when the smartphones started exploding on airplanes. Um, it was a big deal back then, but the brand did recover somewhat. I mean, and people did forget. But I think that what that event showed was that Samsung was starting to lose that luster that it had from the Apple versus Samsung wars, that they weren't always going to be making the great, incredible, you know, awesome phones forever, like the Todd Pendleton-style marketing campaigns. The things that Samsung is focusing on now are actually, you know, 5G systems, you know, data networks. They're focusing on um, artificial intelligence semiconductors. They're, you know, Samsung is becoming more focused on the back end, which is really what their strength, their traditional strength is. And so I think that the way they're going to market themselves in the future is going to be much more B2B, um, you know, they're going to be with these trade wars going on with China and, you know, the sanctions against Huawei and the, the fears over 5G networks being deployed in different countries. I think that Samsung is shifting to a, a more back-end marketing strategy where they're, they're starting to say, look, I mean, we're not China. We have all the capabilities of an incredible multinational firm. We can supply 5G systems. We're from South Korea. We're not going to spy on you. Um, you can trust us and, you know, we'll give you your semiconductors. We're not going to damage national security for that. That's really where I've seen the, the pitches going lately. And I think that we're going to see that for the next maybe five to 10 years, a focus on 
those data networks and, you know, back to the telecommunications firms, how they can market to telecoms companies and, and B2B companies like that. The book is Samsung Rising. It's the inside story of the South Korean giant that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech. Jeffrey Kane, Jeffrey with a G, for those who want to search for the book, uh, Jeffrey Kane, C-A-I-N. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a, this was a real pleasure. Thank you, Fergus. Appreciate it. And we'll see everybody else on the next episode.